the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. In December 1931, Winston Churchill was hit by a car. He was in New York City, and he should have been killed. His friend, the prof, later calculated that the effect of the car's blow upon Churchill's body was effectively like falling 30 feet from a building and landing without any mitigation of the blow on the ground. Winston Churchill survived, however, and so that strange episode from December 1931 did not end his dazzling life and career. In fact, in May 1940, May 10th, 1940 to be exact, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of Great Britain and led England, Britain, and Western civilization more broadly in the heroic fight against Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, and the Axis powers. Why talk about Winston Churchill? Well, today on City of God, I'm joined by Mike Dixon, my assistant here at the Center for Public Theology, to talk briefly about a review essay that I wrote for Providence Magazine about Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is a figure I massively look up to. I first really uh, dipped into Churchill's life and writing through the influence of Albert Moeller when I was an intern for him and uh, later an employee at Southern Seminary and have uh, acquired a very strong passion, I, would, I think the word would be, for, <laughs> for Winston Churchill. Mike Dixon's here. Mike, what is your own background of engagement with Winston Churchill, friend? I think going through high school, becoming enamored with just the overall study of history, mm. thanks to some great history teachers in my, my public high school back in Arkansas. Uh, I was drawn naturally to World War II as it being one of the, the, the touchstones of history, mm-hmm. in, in, in recent history at least. Naturally, when you start studying World War II, you come across that great prime minister during those days, Winston Churchill. And so uh, that study deepened throughout college as I minored in history Hmm. and even took a specified World War II class thinking about Churchill, reading about Franklin Roosevelt's relationship with Winston Churchill. Um, John Meacham has a great book on that, Franklin and Winston, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And that that really pushed me over the edge into loving Winston and and doing some study. I haven't studied him as much as I would like to. Um, I'm also... I just love most things British. And so so reading and studying about him, watching the movies that have come out recently, especially Darkest Hour, um, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, his his role. So that's, that's kind of my brief history. It's not as deep as I would like for it to be, but um, hopefully this conversation will lead to even more great study of, of Churchill. Well, that's really fun that you had a whole course on World War mm-hmm. II 
in college. That's fantastic. Tons of schools are doing away uh, with just that sort of course. And uh, we're even being trained in a kind of hermeneutic, not merely of suspicion, as academics will sometimes call it, but of despisal, a hermeneutic Mm. of despisal when it comes to American history, uh, Western civilization, uh, the very discipline of history itself. Um, uh, But that's not what we're uh, approaching uh, history from. I do not teach a hermeneutic of despisal. Um, I do teach, of course, that we need to be clear-eyed about uh, about the American past, about certainly the global past. Um, individuals like Winston Churchill, I don't know him to have been an evangelical Christian, a born-again believer. I'm not sure that could have happened. He notably had a, a lengthy conversation with Billy Graham late in Churchill's life. Um, so that's interesting. We don't know what the, the Lord may or may not have done in Churchill's heart, but never certainly a traditional religious believer, traditional evangelical Christian. Nonetheless, in God's common grace, uh, a heroic figure, uh, a very flawed figure whose uh, strengths and weaknesses were both outsized, yet in the 80th anniversary of the week when Winston Churchill became prime minister of Great Britain, we honor him. Uh, We honor him. And so uh, this conversation hopefully can help uh, not simply the two of us in some small way, but some listeners out there who may have learned some element of that hermeneutic of despisal or uh, uh, more more happily, uh, more innocently, may just not know that much about Churchill and may be piqued to learn a little bit more. Absolutely. And your piece in Providence, you uh, divide his life or his his life after 1931, um, where he was struck by a car in New York City. Uh into three scenes you have his uh, and, and we'll start i'd like for you to discuss his alone you call it alone but alert uh, the wilderness years of a statesman prophet um this really eight years where winston is not in office he is and he's not really in power he is just exiled uh talk about what he was doing during that time um and how that really groomed him to take to rise to power uh, in the Second World War? Yeah, what a fun question. I think in regard to Churchill in this period, in the 1930s, of what Bain says in The Dark Knight Rises, uh, effectively, paraphrased slightly, I was born in the shadows. <laughs> so, molded by it, right? <laughs> I was mol- molded by yes. this. <laughs> So uh, I think that Churchill was a bit in the shadows uh, in in this period. Now, of course, he's a spectacularly prominent figure in England. Uh, He has already been Chancellor of the Exchequer, Home Secretary, First Lord of the Admiralty. By the way, that's the best uh, governmental title ever. Right. (laughs) First Lord of the Admiralty. And like you, I'm an Anglophile. Of course, I'm also from New England. So I was raised in revolutionary country. And some of the earliest scenes I can remember from my very life are of visiting Revolutionary War sites in Massachusetts in particular. My grandparents lived in Lincoln. So my mother, my family would take us to sites of the the first battles of the Revolutionary War in in Lincoln, Lexington, Concord. So I'm a I'm an American uh, patriot, hopefully in the right sense, but I'm also, I've, I've become more and more, like you said a few minutes ago, an Anglophile and, and love mm-hmm. British culture, which is kind of funny. But I digress. In the 1930s, Winston Churchill is in the shadows. He's, he's not in office. He's desperate to be in office, and he is desperate to fulfill the goal of his entire existence, which is to be prime minister of Great Britain. And yet, he is definitely shut out from power. Um, he is 
the voice on the planet who most recognizes the threat that Hitler represents in uh, in war uh, uh, in, in wartime Germany, Germany becoming a war power that is in the 1930s. And Churchill is fearless, absolutely fearless in calling Hitler out and calling attention over and over again in the halls of parliament, in his great speeches in this period to the, the, the massive threat that, that Hitler and Nazi Germany represents. But all that truth telling, um, only disenfranchises Churchill further. Uh, in terms of his lordly peers, his eminent peers. Nonetheless, Churchill builds effectively a shadow network, uh, a spy intelligence network um, that is not formal, but consists of numerous government uh, officials in key positions uh, feeding him intelligence. He uses that intelligence in the aforementioned uh, uh, speech-rattling work that he does. And then at the end of the decade, um, there's a cascading sense in England that Churchill needs to be in the, the wartime government, and he is eventually admitted. And then again, on May 10th, 1940, becomes prime minister. Right. And when we, when we study this, the juxtaposition of a, a Churchill against the Baldwins and the MacDonald and, and uh, Neville Chamberlain mm. um, is, is actually magnificent. It's, it's what he was saying in the 30s about Hitler and about the Nazis is is incredible. The insights that he had, and what the leaders of Britain were unwilling to say during that time, it, it's incredible. And uh, your last paragraph of that section, when you when you say only the truly great uh, stand evil down by their God given strength, the strength that comes out not in an uncontrolled fury, but in controlled defiance. That is utterly terrifying to the wicked. I imagine Hitler was quite terrified when Churchill was given the premiership. Uh, it's, it, it, was, it was probably horrifying. He knew Churchill was a lion, uh, as, as Manchester uses. That, yeah, that that's ex- yeah, that's exactly right. Um, warriors recognize warriors. Hitler was honestly a very impressive warrior in natural terms. Uh, I mean, what he does, what he succeeds in doing in Germany is beyond incredible in making it a warrior nation. Now, of course, the Prussian military tradition is a very strong one. So Germanic blood, if we can use that phrase, has always run hot. And the Germans, the Prussians before them, have always been very good at at war. But Hitler represents uh, a, a late entry in that, in that line of warriors. Of course, Hitler himself is motivated by absolutely virulent and wicked ideas. And Churchill uh, is, is really the, the, the major figure who sees that. He sees actually early on the anti-Semitic strain, this very strong one, of course, that comes out right. uh, much more prominently, right. but he sees it early on when others don't. There is an anti-Semitic strain actually in England, in high-level England in this period, which is very sad uh, to see. Churchill is a friend of, of the Jews, so to speak, and, and later uh, helps establish Israel and so does heroic work along those lines. But yeah, uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain in particular represents the apogee of appeasement. Tim Bouverie has written an excellent book called, quite succinctly, Appeasement. Uh, it just came out this past year, and it, it profiles in, frankly, painful fashion 
just how hard these three figures with Chamberlain, again, at the height of appeasement, the high priest of appeasement, had to work to not go to war against Germany. Um, And of course, there are many difficult decisions. And of course, it's easy to call these things from the easy chair. Nonetheless, Churchill recognizes that there is ultimately not going to be any uh, diplomatic deal that one can make with Adolf Hitler. The only thing you can do with an Adolf Hitler, uh, once you have effectively bargained your chips away and given them to him piecemeal, is fight him and fight him to the death. Absolutely. So those are the wilderness years, the wilderness years of Winston Churchill. And on May 10th, 1940, Churchill becomes prime minister. And you, you titled this section, Embattled but Intransigent, the war years of a warrior prime minister. Strong words. Um, <laughs> but I think we can all agree that describes Winston perfectly. Hmm. He, is, he has been embattled through these wilderness years, through, through being shunned. He was not lazy during those eight years. He was working possibly harder than he ever had mm. to maintain some sort of power and prowess. Um, but he's intransigent. So, so talk about the theme of intransigence with, with Churchill and maybe a need that we need to recover this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intransigent is a word that's basically um, informally been declared outmoded. You know, it's one of these right. old fashioned words that people don't like anymore. Um, it doesn't sound... Uh, very beta male, the way that language <laughs> needs to today. But it's a great Latin word, uh, and it means um, basically not coming across. That's what the original Latin word means, not coming across. So in other words, it's like an enemy is calling you to come across and submit to their, to their rule, to their dominion, and you say no. And that's, that's what Winston Churchill does. That's, that's the substance of his prime ministerial career. There's, of course, a ton more at, at play in it. But fundamentally, Churchill was intransigent uh, before Hitler. In other words, he refused to come across. He refused to submit. He, he declined the terms. And he, um, he joined the battle uh, when he became prime minister against Nazi Germany. And he leads England not in that first several months, first year of war, not even in the first several years of war. It's not until 1943, really, that the victories truly start piling up for Great Britain and for the Allies more broadly. Churchill leads England initially just to survive. And just surviving, in 1940 in particular, takes beyond extreme effort, will, power, concentration, and strength. In God's common grace, again, Winston Churchill had that ferocity of will that was necessary not only uh, to, to, to rally England, but to help England and Great Britain more broadly to survive the, the tremendous power of the Nazi attack, a power that is felt, of course, uh, in the skies as wave after wave of uh, Luftwaffe bombers attack London and kill thousands, tens of thousands over time, and also in the Atlantic Sea, where U-boats viciously hunt uh, not only, of course, British warships, but Allied shipping more broadly, sinking dozens of boats. I mean, the scariest place to be, I think, in the wartime period in the first few years of World War II was the Atlantic. It was, to, it was to be uh, somebody bringing uh, some sort of consumer good to Britain and, uh, and get that dreaded sense 
that the U-boats are onto you. Uh, your your fate was very nearly se- sealed if that was the case. All this to say, Churchill leads Britain in this display of, again, unbending resolve to not capitulate to these attacks, uh, to not wave the white flag. And there's a real lesson for us there. We can spell that out more. I won't go on here further, but there's a tremendous lesson for us, uh, not just looking back at wartime. Oh, neat. Winston Churchill was defiant, but for us to defy evil too. Absolutely. It, we really see that when in his speeches, in his radio addresses, how those wilderness years were forming him into this embattled but intransigent leader mm-hmm. um, who was able to lead a nation that maybe was a little stalled out um, due to its previous leadership. Um, but we see that with de Gaulle in France. We mm-hmm. see that with Churchill in uh, Great Britain, how they, they were able to use speeches. Maybe talk about the impact mm-hmm. of, of some of these, these speeches, maybe not in, in uh, particular, but just how he used radio and his natural speaking skills to light a fire under a nation that was maybe lulled to sleep or had given up some hope in this battle. Our policy is to wage war. That is the phrase uh, that I think captures what we're after here. <laughs> it's very hard to summarize Churchill as a speechifier um, because he is he is the speechifier par excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, outside of the Protestant preaching tradition and human history, certainly, of course, outside of Christ himself. So uh, Churchill, Churchill is second to none as, as a speech giver. But that line encapsulates what uh, we're talking about here with an embattled but intransigent form of leadership on Churchill's part. Our policy is not to try uh, to appease the dictator. Our policy is not to seek favorable terms of peace that will preserve the British Empire but allow Hitler a free hand in Europe. Uh, Our policy is not to bemoan this and collapse into a puddle of tears. Our policy, Churchill said in one of his most famous speeches, earliest speeches as prime minister, is to wage war. And then he went on to elaborate by land, by sea, in the air, everywhere. We are waging war to the death, he said, paraphrasing. And so um, Churchill is a great war leader, in many respects, but would not have been uh, the figure that he is uh, in retrospect outside of that ability to, as one onlooker said, um, marshal the English language and march it into battle. Uh, he, he, simply, he simply has uh, uh, artillery to bear uh, in the House of Parliament that others did not have. He, he has, he has gunpowder and, uh, and he has heavy weaponry of speech, and he deploys it, and he deploys it very effectively. Of course, all his rhetoric, though, is 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 not uh, merely calling, uh, you know, to go to battle and that sort of thing. He he is famously uh, one who calls for generous terms of peace once battles are over. Uh, so so he's a complex figure, and we need to do justice to that. Nonetheless, we should recognize in him, and Christians and Christian preachers should recognize in the Churchillian legacy, a profound affirmation in common grace terms of the power of words. So every pastor out here, look, you're not you're not going to probably have this sort of wartime uh, uh, epical moment that Winston Churchill had, right. but but if you're a preacher, if you preach on a regular basis. You have a magnificent opportunity that is far greater than what Winston Churchill had because you declare the very word of God 
to the people of God. The angels long to look into the things that you declare on a weekly basis. So we can make connections in various ways between Churchill and our work in the, in, in the work of Christian ministry and even say, as great as these speeches are, as great as his pen is as well, he's an incredible writer in addition, uh, the work we get to do by God's grace is, is greater still. That's a fantastic word, and and certainly more could be said about uh, wartime Churchill. Uh, we could <laughs> devote an entire series of podcasts, <laughs> yes, um, to Churchill's leadership in uh, during the the Second World War. But I'd, I'd like to get us ahead to your last heading in this in this piece in Providence: dying but unyielding, the last days of the last lion. And I really want us to. to Focus in here for a few minutes on Winston's relationship with Clementine or Clemmy, as as he affectionately re- referred to her uh, <laughs> as his wife of fifty seven years. Uh, a, a beautiful picture of marriage. Uh, you can see that I think really well done in the movie Darkest Hour. Um, they're they're hilarious at times relationship, but one that's built on a, a foundation of of unyielding love. Mm-hmm. Uh, to use your, your theme of unyielding. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about Winston and Clemmy and even those those last days, which you, you beautifully, beautifully write about here in this piece. Thank you. That's kind. Yeah, any couple that calls each other pug and cat uh, <laughs> has a depth of affection and, and a certain uh, idiosyncrasy about their relationship that is, uh, it, it is worthy of some attention. And so Winston and, and Clementine are married in 1908. Churchill dies in 1965. So uh, 57 years of marriage, six decades of marriage. It's not an easy life. Uh, Churchill is enrobed in power, uh, as we have tried to spell out here in this humble little podcast. Readers who want to read more, listeners who want to read more, that is about uh, Churchill can start with the one-volume biography by Andrew Roberts, and then the especially the first two volumes of the Last Lion trilogy by William Manchester. Those are probably the two places I would recommend to start, as well as Paul Johnson's very short Churchill biography, another excellent uh, resource. But uh, yeah, Churchill's life is is epic. Uh, it's it's Olympian, but that comes at a great cost. It comes at a great cost. And so the hardest part of the Churchill legacy for me, aside from the spiritual dimension that we've already talked about, is the fact that uh, his children struggle greatly right. in life. One of one of his daughters um, dies before him. She is uh, an alcoholic. His son Randolph dies not long after Churchill himself dies, and also battles alcoholism. Um, and so, so there's a there's a complex familial legacy there in Churchill's life that we shouldn't overlook, and that should, frankly, caution those of us who do uh, have an interest in leadership and influence in these sorts of things. We have to recognize that uh, whatever God might grant us, great or small, uh, the, the bigger the charge gets, uh, the greater the costs may well be. And so, there's a real lesson for us there. Nonetheless, Winston and Churchill, as as we all must do, fought for their marriage. Uh, we Christians especially fight by the power of the gospel, fight by the power of the indwelling spirit uh, to, to kill the flesh and to, to love one another well, husbands to lead their wives in a Christ-like way, Ephesians 5, and wives to submit to their husband in a church-like way. We need God's power to live that out. In, in natural terms, Winston and Clementine cling to one another, and you see the fruit of that at the end of Churchill's life. Not many uh, biographers talk about this at great length, probably because by the time you get to Churchill's uh, death uh, as a biographer, you are completely exhausted right. <laughs> by chronicling his incredible up and down episodic life. 
Nonetheless, in a biography of Clementine Churchill, actually, by Sunira Purcell, um, I, I saw this little nugget um, spelled out in greater detail than I'd noticed before in other biographies of Churchill. And I'm not a Churchill expert, I should, I should say, but I do read very widely in him, in, in his uh, body of work devoted to him. And Purcell brings out that Churchill enters a coma uh, roughly a week before his death in January 1965. And uh, though in a comatose state, to the great surprise of the household staff and onlookers, Churchill grips Clementine's hand tightly. Uh, Folks who have some sad uh, knowledge of what happens when a person enters a coma will know that that is very highly unusual. Right. Uh, I guess it's not unheard of that such a thing would happen, but highly, highly unusual. When you are comatose, normally, you are very near death. You are on death's doorstep, to use the familiar term. And so Churchill is. He's about to die. But I think we see a little picture of who he was in his, in his dying moments. Because just as he has clung to Clementine through thick and thin in six decades of marriage, so as he is on uh, the precipice of his life about to enter death, so he clings to her. And in reading that little detail, he never wakes up. He never comes back to consciousness, uh, unlike Ronald Reagan, who has a similar deathbed moment. But Reagan actually wakes up, according to his daughter, Patty Davis, uh, at Reagan's funeral, looks at Reagan's wife, Nancy, and uh, for a full moment, apparently, Mm -hmm. and then dies, does not have the strength. I, I don't know what this is like, of course, experientially, but Reagan does not have the strength to speak uh, to, to his wife, but he does have the strength to look directly at his wife for a full minute and then dies. In other words, I think Reagan was saving his last strength to give his wife this parting gift. Mm. Churchill, I think, is doing something similar. These two lions of men. Churchill is, is using, I, I assume, in whatever state one can do this, you know, that is not fully conscious, he is using his last strength to grip his wife's hand, to signal to her that he loves her, signaling through a coma. That, to me, is a little picture of what the Lord says to Adam in Genesis 2.24. Not to make too much of it, but uh, the Lord tells Adam to hold fast to Eve, a charge that Adam immediately fails to keep, sadly. All of us husbands see the seeds of our own failings, and we all fail in many ways in that moment. Nonetheless, I think that call echoes into today, that ancient call, hold fast to your wife, Mm. uh, even in death. Uh, Winston Churchill does that with Clementine and then passes away on January 22nd, 1965. And it's even for for us as Christians, it's a a look forward into the the day when Jesus will look his bride into into eternity. We'll look at his bride uh, and it's a love that we'll never be able to imagine until that day. But as husbands, we ought to attempt to emulate for our brides um, until that day, really. Um, yeah, that's really nicely said. That's really nicely said. Jesus, 
Jesus is ultimately the one who holds fast to us. That's the only way any of us is saved. If we could lose our salvation, this question that's sometimes raised, you mm-hmm. know, in Christian circles, can we lose our salvation? Well, the, que- the, the answer is, if we could lose our salvation, we would. <laughs> we would lose it immediately. But the good news is that our salvation is in no way dependent upon us. God fully engages us as a, as a, as a person with, with heart, mind, and will uh, being regenerated in conversion. And yet, God is the one who does that regenerating work. And so God is the one through his son, Jesus Christ, who holds us fast. That's exactly right. The, the, the ultimate husband will never let go of, of the bride. Mm. And that's a beautiful truth that I think we can see little distant glimmers of in, in this world. Absolutely. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. I think m- the thing that affected me the most as I'm reading this piece and I'm reflecting on some of my own study of, of Churchill is just the need to be intransigent in the things that matter most. So in my doctrine, in my love for my wife, and in, in, in just life, to be intransigent. Um, obviously, we have a greater motivation for that as those in Christ, as those who are men of the word, people of the word, mm-hmm. um, to be intransigent on what the word says. So uh, final words about about Churchill and, and, and his life and what that can mean for Christians today who are who are walking this this journey. Yeah, I appreciate your your kind words there. I, I agree. And and you quoted a line from the piece earlier that I I think is is important for us to reiterate when talking about intransigence, unyielding defiance. Mm. Basically, we are not saying be red faced and shouting and obstinate at anybody who would challenge you. Right. We believe fully in the fruits of the spirit as believers. We must, and so humility. Uh, and, and the ability to be corrected, for example, are vital uh, realities in our life and vital realities for men, um, for men training for ministry, for men in ministry. But we also have to take care that we don't so focus on uh, meekness, let's say, that we lose sight of the biblical call to, in one sense, all Christians, and in another sense, men in particular who lead in the home church and to some degree in society to be intransigent. So every believer has to be unyielding in the face of evil, in the face of sin, in the face of Satan's attacks. Uh, we, we must be unyielding. Every believer, man and woman, boy and girl. And then leaders in particular, and let's zero in on the key leader in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, pastors, elders, teams of elders, uh, and those who teach the word of God by extension, uh, like in a seminary or college, something like this. We have to be defiant of the enemy that, again, does not come out, does not manifest uh, primarily in enraged shouting at people (laughs) Uh, because, you know, someone who helps you didn't get your pizza quick enough or something like this, (laughs) something ridiculous, but comes out in godly, loving, for the sheep, gracious, God-centered, unwillingness to submit to evil, Mm. absolute ferocity of will powered by the gospel of grace in the face of Satan and his anti-kingdom. That's what we're after. So the life of Winston Churchill is not itself, uh, to my knowledge, you know, a one-for-one depiction of a Christian existence. But I believe that God in his grace gives us common grace pictures even of figures who who speak to us in their own imperfect way, even perhaps non-Christian way, of a truth that we, we find reflected uh, uh, taught in the Word of God, and to close here, that we find preeminently, not just in the Bible in some generic way, but in Jesus Christ, mm. the warrior Savior, who comes 
1 John 3, 9 to dis- and 10, to destroy the works of the devil, who is an absolutely, utterly unyielding and totally defiant uh, towards Satan and his, his deathful work. And praise God that Jesus was intransigent. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.